killed. And you will kill again. You're getting closer and closer to the most unnatural kind of death. Welcome to Cinema Italia, a podcast dedicated to the world of Italian cinema. Presented by me, John Bleasdale. Italia, the podcast which celebrates Italian film from the silence to the present day. And I'm delighted to have with me Philip Gwynne Jones, the massively successful novelist of a, a series of crime novels set in Venice. He, he lives in Venice. And in fact, we, we should have done this, Phil. This was one of my ideas that didn't quite work out because we often meet to have coffee at, at a bar in, in Venice. And it would have been lovely to have done this recording from there. Yeah, we should have done a live recording, shouldn't we? Absolutely. Yeah. Um... Um, I might have needed something rather stronger than a coffee, but yes. <laughs> yeah, a spritz or a hugo or something. Yes. Yeah. Thanks very much for joining me. And we're gonna be we're gonna be talking about Dario Argento's probably his most famous film, Profundo Rosso, the uh, deep red, as it's called in English. Yeah, I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to talk about Argento and to talk about uh, what is I can never quite decide if it's my favourite film of his or not, but it's one with a lot to talk about. So that's why I, I suggested this as an idea. Yeah, yeah, and and you told me very specifically that I had to watch the Italian version and not the English version. Why? <laughs> why was that? Right, it's a little bit longer, and it depends what sort of film you're expecting. First of all, um, it, it doesn't really matter if you watch it in, in Italian or if you watch it in English because. It was all recorded basically in English anyway, and then dubbed afterwards. The only actor, I think, who didn't record in English was Clara Calamai. Everybody else, I believe, actually recorded in English and dubbed it over afterwards. So that's not really an issue here about authenticity or anything like that. There's about another 10 or 15 minutes of the relationship between Marcus and Jana, David Hemmings and Dalia Nicolodi, in the Italian one, which a lot of people don't like, and they think it slows the film down. I find it absolutely charming, um, and it, 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 which is why I have this theory that Profondo Rosso is actually a sort of 1940s screwball comedy with axe murders. <laughs> Uh, and so I, I really like that extra material that there is in the Italian version. So that's what I recommend it to people. If you want to see the shock value version just for the murders and not much else, then by all means, you know, watch the US cut or whatever. But... I did really enjoy watching the Italian version. I realised that I'd already seen the Italian version. So perhaps I've never seen the English version. 
But I, it, the Italian version starts with the David Hemmings sort of uh, in the jazz, sort of with his jazz group, and he has this line, it has to be trashy. And I think that's sort of like a great statement by Argento of, of where he's an art, artist. And where, where they're recording as well, it's like the, the jazz sarcophagus or something like that. I mean, it's a great it's a great location. And he says, yes, we need. it's got to be more trashy, more of the, yeah, this is music played in the bordello and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a lovely sort of, thesis statement for his uh, you know statement of intent for for the beginning of the movie uh, when did you first see th- this film was, had you already seen a lot of Argento or was this your introduction as as for many people it might be yeah this was the second one I saw the first one I ever saw was the cat of nine tales which is his uh, his second one effectively it's not a film he particularly likes I think it's it's a perfectly good Hitchcock style thriller and there's some great set pieces in it. But that was the first one I saw, and it's it's uh, it's not that brutal by the standards of his later films. You know, you could watch that uh, in company without having to warn people too much. About, well, the, the train uh, the train murder is pretty shocking, I suppose, but it's a fairly standard thriller, is what I'm trying to say. And then I thought, well, okay, well, this isn't too bad. I need to trap here to check out some of his other things. And I think the next one probably was Profondo Rosso. I can't remember where I saw it because I don't think it would have been on TV. I can only assume it it must have been on VHS. Yeah, back in the back in the day. I must have found a copy on VHS. And I don't remember if it was the Italian version or the US version that I saw. Um, but it made a, yeah, a big impression on me. And I, I kept coming back to it, you know, every couple of years. Now I probably watch it once a year as um as a feel-good movie, or even as a Christmas movie, because technically, Profondo Rosso is a Christmas film. Yeah, so when, if we're arguing about Die Hard or things like that, you should say, oh, well, no, I, I spend my Christmas watching Profondo Rosso. <laughs> even with that music at the very beginning and exactly. the, uh, yeah. the Christmas tree, yeah. and yeah. The Christmas tree, yeah. yeah. <laughs> works for me, works for me. Um, what about Dario Argento? Because I remember the first time I think I became aware of Dario Argento and Profondo Rosso would have been with Jonathan Ross had that, that incredibly strange film show in the 1980s. Yeah. And I, I seem to remember him doing doing a um doing a Dario Argento episode. I might be wrong about that, but that that sticks in my mind for some reason. I don't remember that episode, but it's entirely possible it's the sort of thing he would have done. Yeah, that's a good series there. Um my how did I first hear about Argento? I don't know. There wasn't um it wasn't in any of my standard, you know, history of horror reference books. I think it was probably in um there used to be a magazine published in the UK called The House of Hammer, which then became The House of Horror. And I remember there was a report from uh, oh, probably the Saturn Film Festival or something like that, and everybody was talking about this film called Suspiria. Um, I, I would have been, you know, maybe 12 years old at the time, far too young to see the film. But mm. there was this image from Suspiria, which never left me, which was um, one of the earliest shots in the film. It's the woman who's crashed through the skylight, and is hanging from this electrical cord, and there's blood everywhere. And below her, there's uh, the other woman who's been bisected by a sheet of glass. And this seemed like the most extreme thing you could possibly ever see. And I thought, I, I do remember what I was probably reading that magazine. I would definitely turn over those two pages so I didn't have to look at it because it was so horrible. But that was the first time I heard of this bloke called Dario Argento. And then I suppose I, I'd watched various of his films over the years. And then coming to live in Italy, and it was the year that Argento's Dracula came out. Yeah. And talking about it with other students in my Italian class, 
and then realizing that in Italy, Argento is not a cult figure. He's kind of mainstream, you know. Um, you know, I think he occasionally does football punditry about Lazio and things like that. So he's a figure that people would know. Whereas in the UK, um, other than genre cinema fans, he's probably not that well known, if known at all. So that was the realization that, yeah, that he was, you know, significant that he was important in Italian film history. Absolutely. I, I mean, and to place him in Italian film history, um, you know, Argento starts, I think, as a film critic. Am I right in that? Uh, he's he's a, right. a, a yeah. journalist. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then he does some writing for Sergio Leone. He's one of the script, uh, credited script writers of uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, mm. Mm. along with Bernardo Bertolucci, which makes that film just an, yeah. an amazing. amazing. Yeah. Wouldn't you have liked to have had dinner with those guys? When they were Leone playing? and Bertolucci and Argento. Yeah, imagine the dinner table yeah <laughs> so he's he's doing that sort of stuff and then uh, so he's in and around a lot of different people and, and the industry and what have you and with and as you say in it italy is definitely considered mainstream he's definitely sort of on talk shows and you know um uh, considered a figure and and really partly because there is a lot of genre of cinema that is in the mainstream that a lot of people go to see jali and a lot of people go and see horror films and politsetsky during his period of real prominence during the 70s mm. and 80s mm. And so that's exactly when you know when he's making these films, they're 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 getting mass audiences in uh, in Italy, if not internationally. Yeah, I mean, he was very much in the right place at the right time. Um, at the highlights of the Jali, the Poliziotteschi, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And if you think about figures that came after him, people like maybe like Michele Suavi, who I think is a pretty good filmmaker, but unfortunately, he was just not there to ride that wave. He's just a little bit further on, and you know interest was waning you know people were moving you know away from that sort of style of cinema so he was his great period spans the you know the great period of the jello i suppose and he's he's sort of one of these figures as well who's who's been somewhat rediscovered uh, especially this period of his has been rediscovered in recent years with people like nicholas winding refn and other sort of uh, noted hollywood directors sort of and, and, and of course the remake of suspiria yeah yeah i think quentin tarantino i'm pretty sure he's a fan as well but yeah mm. Yeah, exactly. That sort of grindhouse. This is exactly that sort of stuff that that, that Tarantino and Eli Roth and and all those directors will name check. Mm. So let's get on to the actual film itself. Then, so we have uh, David Hemmings, who at this point has he he's made Antonioni's Blow Up, right? Yeah, he's done that, and he's uh, this is about five or six years on from Blow Up. So he's a figure. He's important. He's not quite the beautiful young man of the swinging 60s anymore. I mean, I his, so he, his career, I think, has peaked by this point. Mm. I don't know why he did this. Um, if he thought that nobody would see it and he'd get a holiday in Turin out of it, uh, I really don't know. Um, I'm very glad he did because I think he's excellent in it. It's the film I remember him for as well as Blow Up. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, he is sort of one of those figures of the 60s that never really he, he's not on the same level as say your peter o'toole or your richard burton or your you know those even you know albert finney you know that that sort of uh british british irish star that made he it never quite made it to that level did he i know he had um booze problems in the uh in the 70s but to be fair almost everybody else he mentioned <laughs> 
uh, was going through a similar a similar thing in their own lives, I suspect. Yeah. yeah, I think you got a bottle of vodka every day if you were if you were working yeah. at that time. It was just <laughs> de rigueur. Mm. So he's uh, he's playing, and it's interesting. You mentioned something just just I'd like to underline. It's set in it's filmed and set in Turin, and I think coming from uh, outside of Italy and watching. And watching the film, you can be very, you know, you can be forgiven for often thinking every Italian film is set in Rome or or, mm. or, or maybe Florence. But so it's interesting that he sets it in Turin. That's that's something. Yeah, do you know the story behind that? I'm told the, his, the story was that he set, he set it there because he'd read that there were more Satanists in Turin than any other city in Europe. I don't know whether to believe that or not, or whether that was just a quip, because it's not really a supernatural film, a very, very slight element of the supernatural. I suspect he did it because it was cheaper, you know. <laughs> yeah, and there are some, and there are some definite sort of um, uh, what's what's the word landmarks that he uses mm. quite 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 well, especially yeah. the scene where David Hemmings. I just uh, it, it, what's his first name, Marco. Marcus. Marcus. Yeah, yeah. Not a particularly English name for. Uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> Marcus and his sort of uh, alcoholic jazz friend Carlo have a discussion mm. in front of that huge statue, which yeah. is very, feels very uh, prominent. Yeah, I mean, I was in Turin last year for the uh, Dario Fest at the Cinema Museum, and of course, my wife was wonderful because I dragged her around every location I could think of, and of course, I had to have a photo. In that square in front of the statue, yes. <laughs> it's got to be done. It's got, it's to, got be done. to be done. <laughs> and that's a wonderful that's a wonderful museum. I love that place. I went to it uh, a, f- a few years ago. Well worth well worth a trip if you're in Turin. And Turin itself is an interesting city because it's sort of quite a working class city in many ways. Mm-hmm. Most people will recognize it from uh, the Italian job and the and the, mm-hmm. the Fiat factories. Uh, based yeah, I, there. I, I, I really like it. And it's, uh, you know, if you're playing these little games with yourself, you think, well, if I wasn't living in Venice, where would I like to live? And I quite often I think oh, I'd live in Turin, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, we're spoiled for choice, really. Uh, belong well, we to a great yeah. city as well. Uh, so, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, so we well, actually, we start, of course, with with a sort of John Carpenter, uh, well, a scene that sort of John Carpenter uses a little bit in Halloween as well, a sort of a prelude, if you like, of a mm. murder taking place, which which you're not really. It's very unclear what's going on, right? Right. Okay. I mean, we've got that sort of iconic um, theme music by Goblin in the background. And all of a sudden, it cuts away to this scene, which is obviously at Christmas, it's in front of a Christmas tree. And then this tinkly little lullaby is being sung in the background. And you see this very expressionist-like shadow on the wall about somebody is being stabbed, and there's a woman screaming. And then a bloodied knife drops at the feet of somebody who's obviously a child. And you think... How long before Halloween was this, and did Carpenter know about it? Mm. Now, I think Halloween is a brilliant film. Carpenter is also one of my favourite filmmakers. I wonder if uh, if he'd seen this and thought, oh, there's an idea there. <laughs> the linking of child to murder and the mm. possible suspicion that the child himself mm. might be the murderer, um, which is planted very early on. And that, and I wanted to know if this is the first film to use that sort of slightly off-key lullaby uh, sort of nursery rhyme uh, going in the background. Yeah. 
because that now feels like a cliche and i recognize it from nightmare on elm street which of course is the 1980s mm-hmm. so it comes much later but uh this this feels very much and it comes up again and again i mean this is a film which mm-hmm. is incredibly meta in the sense mm-hmm. that the, the murderer carries around i'm going to use a, a neutral pronoun their own um soundtrack and you know but plays it on a cassette <laughs> yeah Rev up into the mood for some murdering. I'm gonna. Da, 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 da. I mean, it's a, it's interesting. In the space of just a couple of minutes, you go from the Goblin soundtrack to the Lullaby, and then you're straight away you're into the jazz mm. in the space of a couple of minutes. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's that it's that melange of just shoving everything together and yeah. see, what, see what works. Yeah. And then, of course, we go from the jazz to a uh, a theatre, and again. Mm. that the camera sort of roams around the very subjective way uh mm. and and you're, you're the sort of dr- the curtain is drawn back so you can enter into this beautiful mm. theater where a seance of kinds is taking place or a demonstration of of, of tel- how what would you say telepathy i guess telepathy or clairvoyance telepathy probably isn't it yes yeah. Yeah, or something like that. Yeah. Um, again, it's a beautiful shot. And here, you know, the use of red. Okay, this is what you're going to get. It looks gorgeous. And there's this conference on telepathy or clairvoyance or psychic powers in general. And Masha Meriel, I think, is the actor, uh, is a... Is she supposed to speak German or North European or anyway, a psychic? She speaks German later in the film. And... She's reading people's minds in the audience, and then she suddenly goes into spasm. This is a beautiful shot of her dribbling water from her mouth, which we see repeated in a different way later in the film. And she points at, she's pointing into the crowd and says, somebody here is, is a murderer, effectively, and she knows what they've done. And it's a, it's, a gr- it's a great scene, and it actually reminds me slightly about the opening of Scanners. Again, it's a demonstration of psychic powers, Obviously, the consequences in scanners are slightly more immediate and obvious than explosive, yes, than they are in deep red. Yeah. Yeah, and and this kind of sets up the first victim as well, because of course she mm. detects somebody in the somebody in the audience is mm. is potentially a murderer. And it I mean, thinking back on this film. I'm not I'm not sure how much the story actually makes any sense because there's I mean it, it just so happens that the murderer goes to this psychic, yeah, te- uh, telepathic uh, demonstration, and that sort of keys off all these events. But it's it's not very organic as a way of. Uh... I think with Argento, he's like um, he's like a card sharp. I think, and he keeps his cards moving so quickly that the trick is over. And then when, later on, you think about it, and you, oh, okay, I, no, I didn't realise that at the time, because he was moving the pieces so quickly, you don't have time necessarily to think about, does this actually make a great deal of sense? No, I think it cheats, I think it cheats a little bit at the end. But as I said, he moves his pieces so quickly while you're watching it. It's, uh, it's not necessarily an issue, yeah. There's so much dexterity in the performance. It would be churlish to to sort of pick pick him apart with logic. Yeah, he's the magician pulling a rabbit out of a hat, and later on you think, oh, I suppose we've been a bit cheated there, but there we go, we let it go. <laughs> and he, from the very beginning, there are all these transgressive little touches that he does. Like, for instance, the thing that you mentioned, the dribbling, uh, which mm-hmm. which is repeated two or three times. People, you know, different fluids come out of people's mouths. Um, and it and that 
that is kind of disconcerting. It's kind of one of those things. He's very good at focusing in on something which is, you know, unusual and disconcerting and slightly disgusting, you know? I mean, the murders themselves, he said, you know, they're, they're very creative. They are horrible. I mean, one of them in particular is just awful. You know, the, the scalding to death in the bath. He said that nobody can really imagine, nobody really knows what it's like to be shot. And very few of us know what it's like to be stabbed. Everybody knows, everybody's burned themselves on a kettle or something like that, you know, so that's something the audience can relate to and wince and God, imagine that, that's just about the worst thing you can possibly imagine, yeah. Everybody's cut themselves on broken glass and again the um, Masha Merrill impaled on the on the window, which David Hemmings then goes and lifts her off. I mean, I don't, if I'm in that flat and I see somebody who's been impaled on a, on a pane of broken glass, who has evidently been murdered? I'm, I'm not hanging around there. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that you know, probably a little bit too late here. I'm very sorry, Masha Merrill, but I'm calling the police and I'm calling them from outside. I'm finding a phone yeah. book. I'm sorry. Yeah. In a well lit, well lit, crowded <laughs> place. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so he becomes a witness to this murder of the of, of the telepath, and he's um, and that that murder is done as you say. Really, there's a real violence to it, and a real. It feels so physical, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. You really feel the thud of the uh, machete axe, whatever it is. It's not a delicate little stabbing or a stiletto or anything like that. It's there's a real violence and a brutality to it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Win- wincing. And of course, outside David Hemmings having this conversation with Carlo and um, he's rec- Argento has recreated the Hopper painting Nighthawks at the diner by actually just sticking on a, a, a diner to a, a Turin <laughs> building. Yeah, it looks great, though. I mean, I, I don't know why he did it. But I don't care. It looks great. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's what's interesting about Argento is he sort of also has a, a sort of mishmash of so many different influences that you get the feeling he would be really happy to be making the film in America as well. He doesn't mind having German actors. You know, he, he's re- referencing an American painting rather than an Italian painting. So there's, you know, as with the jazz, it's it's you know keep it trashy, keep it keep it moving. <laughs> when uh, so so then David Hemmings kind of becomes involved in the story because of this uh, because he's the witness because he's there and and he's obviously becomes immediately a suspect yeah. as well. And he's seen, he's seen the, the the black gloved and black hatted figure running away. So immediately we're in one hundred percent stereotypical Jallo territory. The figure in the black coat and the black hat and the black gloves. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that it's a disguise makes you immediately realize it must be somebody in the film that you know, because otherwise, I think there was an America, there was a Clint Eastwood movie in which I think it was Tightrope, where they changed the script at the last minute. And uh, there's a guy, a masked killer who is going around killing people. And at the very end, um, he they pull off the mask and they reveal just some guy, you know, who hasn't been. <laughs> and and it, 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 it's basically they lost the actor and they just changed the script and, and made it into some just rando. Uh, but it's, obviously, that's also brilliantly spoofed by Steve Martin in A Man With Two Brains, where a, a mysterious killer is going around killing people. Oh, and, yes, yes. And the there's other a, killer, yeah. Exactly. And, and you keep having these point of view subjective shots of people mm. suddenly going oh hello how are you <gasps> oh no you know and, and the 
and it's because it's like I don't know if it's Johnny Carson or somebody. It's a very talk show host, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so they're they're recognizing them is because they're famous rather than because <laughs> they're a character in the movie. Yeah. So he becomes a witness, and and there is this amazing. I, I this is the the one of the things that on my rewatch I absolutely loved and adored was the police inspector is just this amazing character. And, and... <laughs> yeah, who's who's the actor? Is it... Uh... Oh, he's great, yeah. I mean, he's, he's making every every use of his last... of his couple of minutes on the screen. Is it Mingotzi? I don't think Mingotzi is the inspector. Um... No, I think it might be Eros Pangi. That's it. That's him, yeah. Yeah. And he's making every... He's maximising every minute he's on the screen, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's eating sandwiches. He's yeah. uh, shouting. He has this hysterical laugh at one point. Yeah. He's, he's sort of assaulting a drinks machine outside he, his yes. office. He's just absolutely talk about chewing the scenery. He's mm. he's he's, uh, he's having a, he puts a napkin under in his collar and a knife and fork and just sets yeah. to. It's like I've got five minutes on screen. I'm going to use those five minutes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but value for money, and it sort yeah. of gives the film this comic, sort of disruptive comic presence from the police. The police are like the Keystone Cops in this film. Oh, they are. Yeah, I mean, it's it, they're not even like the cops in, say, The Bird of the Crystal Plumage or the cops in Tenebrae. You know, this they, they are very much kind of yeah. Comic relief to a certain extent, yeah, yeah. And add to that comic relief comes uh, one of the, you know, um, one of the best elements of the film as well, which is um, Jana, who is played by... Daria Nicolodi, who met Argento on set, and they had a relationship which went on for, well, for over a decade, although sadly it broke down really by the by the early 80s, but it's... Um, Nicolodi always said that this was Argento's happiest film, to work on because you know they were young, they were in love, um, and I think I think that comes through in the film, yeah. And also, I think with Nicolodi, if you look at the collaborations that they had together, which starts with Profondo Rosso, and it goes through every film until Opera, which a lot of people would say is his greatest period. And after Opera, there's definitely okay. There are good films to follow, but there is a falling off in quality. And I wonder. Even if their relationship had broken down, which it had by the time of Tenebrae, I think maybe you know maybe they did just work really well together in you know whatever they had to do. I don't know the way of proving it. A lot of people, I think, would, would dislike that as an interpretation, but it's a hell of a coincidence from Profondo Rosso to Opera. All his great films. It's not a bad one in that run. And when he was in that relationship with Daria, I wonder if there's. Uh, if that's coincidental or not. No, I wouldn't I wouldn't dispute that. I think that's that sounds fairly, you know, it sounds like she she certainly has a role in the film which is extremely she takes control, she's very dominant. I mean, that becomes kind of a joke that she's she's <laughs> yeah. like the Rosalind Russell character in the Absolutely. Page. Yeah. yeah. Also in her job, she's like a um Wisecracking journalist. Wisecracking reporter, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there's a great scene of her in the reporter's office where she sort of, uh, you know, needs a pen and a piece of paper, so she just pulls a guy's hair who's walking yeah. by and then uses him <laughs> as a writing desk. Yes, yeah. Oh, and of course, into a really crap car, which is delightful. 
what car is that? It's like a, a Cinquecento or something like that. Something like that, yes. But of course, there she tells um, Hemmings, oh, don't close the door just after he's closed the door because it doesn't work. So he has to climb out to the roof. And it's just, uh, it's just a delightful bit of physical comedy and a bit of nonsense. Yeah, yeah that goes, and that runs all the way through. It's like two or it three. It does, yeah. yeah we've got an arm wrestling scene later on. And that's, yeah. It's weird that this film is so, you know, considering that Hemmings is, uh, you know, coming, you know, as you say, a few years past Antonioni's sort of ultra cool swinging 60s mm. film. This is this film is kind of like the opposite of cool. It sort of starts yeah. cool with the jazz band and everything. It, it does, but he's he's not. He's a bit of a rubbish protagonist. Bless his heart, you know, he's scared. Because he's like, I would be, you know, he's really scared for the fact that there's a guy at the door in his house saying, you know, I'm going to come back and I'm going to kill you. And he's on the phone saying, don't hang up, don't hang up. There's a maniac in my house. Um, he's not a physical uh, presence particularly. So he's just very much an everyman in this. And, that, you know, beyond the fact that, you know, he's David Hemmings and he looks incredibly beautiful, he's not cool. No. Janna is cool. Janna is cool. Um, you possibly think, oh, Marcus is kind of punching above his weight here, but there we go. <laughs> but Marcus is not cool, yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's very dominant in terms of their sexual relationship as well. It's sort of like, you know, he, she she wants she wants a way of relaxing every now and again. It's no, there's no no real sentiment uh, involved, but it's it's all very amusing and very well done. I, I was thinking of something else about David Hemming's character being sort of not particularly cool. Yes, you're right. He's absolutely scared. There's no sense of him mm. being in any way capable or up to the up to the the uh but even when he's talking to her and she's in the newsroom he's in a bar and he's getting spritzed by the coffee machine yes <laughs> which it's is also very clever because it also introduces the idea of you know being burnt by hot steam and of course oh, that's clever. i haven't thought of that but yes yeah oh that's 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 smart. Yeah. 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 Just like a little introduction of the idea. So, mm. you, know, you know, what happens. So, I mean, let's get to some of these murder murder uh, uh, set pieces, because I think this is what Dario Argento sort of is is most famous for, though. I I would recommend people watch the the longer Italian version just because I love that relationship and it getting mm. enough oxygen to, to breathe in. The the murder that you uh the I think it's the second murder it, the one that you mentioned earlier which is the scalding uh yeah. in, in the bath that is uh that is that is awful yes yeah. I mean I can't yeah. try to try to dance around it yeah I mean I've seen more Argento has had more extreme murders on screen but I think we can imagine that what's mm. worse than drowning it's drowning in scalding water mm. yeah awful awful. We've all put our toe in the bath and thought, ow, that's too hot. You know, yeah, and that, yeah. and this is your face in that bath. Your face, yeah, yeah. And, of course, it's his, um, you, um, you probably know this, it's his hands doing the murder every time. And he says it's just because he knew what he wanted it to look like and it was quicker for him to do it than it was for, for anybody else to, uh, to pull on the black gloves and do it himself, yeah. But again, it's very, very well staged, that particular scene. Um, I, I detected a butter there. <laughs> you know, he says this. Is, is there a, a sort of yeah, yeah, a sense it, that he's enjoying it a bit too much? I wonder, I wonder, yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> uh, for the viewers who are listening, um, this is uh, I bought this on eBay. It's a, it's a black glove 
signed by Argento. Wow. <laughs> and it's, okay. it sits on my writing desk. Um, but yeah, it's a black leather glove signed by Argento. It sits on my writing desk. It's too small for me. Okay. So I, otherwise, otherwise, you can bet your life I would have put it on, you know, <laughs> posed with a kitchen knife or something like that. <laughs> oh, God, I'm so glad we're doing this remotely now because I, uh, I would have been very David Hemmings and, and <laughs> shot out of my seat, I think. Um, yeah, I mean that this murder is 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 brilliantly done. It's really, but there there is I I do have a sort of not necessarily a problem because I think it comes with the territory. But there's a there there there's a glee to the murder as well, which uh, which mm. is is very disturbing, and it it leads to this accusation that Argento is misogynistic, and indeed the Jallo in general is a misogynistic way of kind of. Ugly men punishing beautiful women. It is. And of course, there's a famous quote by Argento about where he said he would rather see a beautiful woman murdered than an ugly man, mm. aesthetically. Mm. Um, my wife will not watch Tenebrae. She got 30 minutes into Tenebrae and said, why am I watching this? Is this a, a woman is murdered every five, six or seven minutes. Uh, and when I said, but if you hang around, you see lots of men get murdered as well. But, you know, I can understand why she didn't really think that was a, a suitable get out. It's something you have to deal with, with Italian cinema of this period, is that can you look beyond the misogyny? Because it is there. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it's one of these things. It, it is what the cinema of the time was like. In some ways, I think, um, yeah, okay. He kills lots of beautiful women. There are great roles for women in all of his great movies. Think about, you know, Suspiria is next, which is pretty much an all-female cast. Um, very good roles for them in Inferno, in Opera, in Phenomena, which is another really good role for Daria. Um, so he, he casts, he, you know, his films are good, strong, interesting roles for women. It's just unfortunate he does seem to like killing them off quite a lot. Yeah, he never shies away from it. He never shies away from it. No, 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 absolutely not. And and and, and graphic, painful, mm. you know, torturous, sadist, mm. sadistic kind of ways. No, I mean, I I I get it with the the period. Um, I don't think this. I think there there is a sense that you're watching something. Which, I mean, you mm. have to you have to look at it in the same context as you might watch the Jew of Malta on stage, mm. the Christopher yeah. Marlowe play. Yeah, you know, the, it it reflects something of its time, which is not yeah. which is no longer particularly acceptable. I mean, for me, a more disturbing one is, is perhaps Sergio Leone's films because I love Sergio Leone much, maybe perhaps because I love him much more mm. than I love Dario Argento. But there's a misogyny that runs through all of his films, all of the dollar films um, on. Which and is once upon a time in America, you know, there's that scene which is really unforgivable. I mean, it's uh... yeah, which we've talked about. Uh, we talked about in an earlier re episode with Pete Biro, but um, mm -hmm. it's yeah, it's 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 kind of as you say, it's kind of unforgivable. It goes on for for way too long, and mm. it's, I mean, but you are right in one thing, which is not only are the women interesting, the women are often the people actually doing the murdering as well. Oh, yeah, 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 quite often they're the prime movers, yeah, yeah. Again, I don't know if it was as a result of his relationship with Nicolodi. I have no evidence of that whatsoever. But, of course, Nicolodi probably wrote or probably inspired much of Suspiria, for example. I don't think Argento would have written Suspiria without her because she claimed to be a white witch, always claimed to be a white witch. 
and I think there's an there's a there's a joy in the supernatural in Suspiria, which you don't see in Argento's earlier films. It's the first purely supernatural one that he does, and I think that must have come from her. She never got she never got as good a role as she did in Profondo Rosso, which is a great shame. Uh, she wanted to have uh, the Jessica Harper role in Suspiria, but she was probably too old, even though she was only mid twenty. She was probably too old for that. She's got an interesting role in Inferno, Tenebrae, not so much. She gets to be great in Phenomena because she can be completely mad and over the top, and that's a really nice role for her as well. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting you talk about the supernatural in in uh, reference to um, Profondo Rosso because Profondo Rosso obviously is is really a seri- a serial killer film, a film, a, mm. sla- a slasher film, if you like. But it does have this thing of telepathy. It does have mm-hmm. this thing of uh, sort of a haunted house, which um, which mm. which turns up, and it also has this these se- sequences which sort of arrive. I suppose if I wanted to be pon- pon- posh, poncy, I could say um, non diegetic sort of things where the mm. camera roams in extreme close up around sort of marbles and various things. Mm. Which, um, as the, it almost feels like an excuse to just have a bit more goblin music. And why not? And why not? Why not? We, we haven't mentioned goblin. Yes, we haven't mentioned goblin. Well, um, yeah, go ahead. Me, um, even in even in some of the earlier, everybody says, "Well, a Jallo is not supernatural." This is why you know we get crossed with people who call Suspiria a Jallo. No, no, it's no, no. There's no no supernatural element in a Jallo. However, unless you want there to be. Because there is the pseudoscience in this film, and in Four Flies on Grey Velvet, again, the pseudoscience, also in The Cat of Nine Tales. So, yeah, there is no supernatural element in a Jallo, unless you want there to be, is what is the way it goes, isn't it? Absolutely, and that is that that uh, character is, uh, of the of the, the the guy who introduces the seance. I don't remember the name of the actor. The um, with the be- it- the bearded man. Yeah, I did. I write this down? No, I didn't write his name down. But he's good. Um... No, Professor Giordani, Glauco Maori. Glauco Maori, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and he his murder is is sort of like uh, I was wondering if Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was perhaps referencing his murder with it sort of being banged on the various mantelpiece corners and coffee table corners. Again, it's um. I have to say, I actually ripped this off in my third novel. Um, ah. where somebody is found having had their teeth knocked out by having it being hammered against an altar rail, because that was just the worst thing I could imagine. And mm. again, Argento thinking about, everybody can probably imagine, you know, the pain of having a tooth knocked out, but the pain of having it done repeatedly with your face pushed against a solid object is worse than being shot and it's worse than being stabbed. And again, the the, the brutality of it. Why am I doing this just because it's awful? You know, this is one of the worst things you can imagine. So I did. Um, I was rather more discreet than Dario was in the novel, but, <laughs> but I did get the idea from there. Oh, it's good to know that his influence is uh, is alive <laughs> and well. Yeah, I mean, I this is the thing about these murders is 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 are we supposed to believe that the murderer is sort of creating these murders in as some sort of there's some sort of meaning to how she kills the people or is this just a bunch of cool ways people can die 
and and it it just so happens that those are the ones she uses. You know, because like with uh, <laughs> Professor Giordani, the idea that he gets his gets his mouth smashed in is kind mm-hmm. of perhaps punishment that he's spoken too much. He's, he's okay, yeah, too yeah, verbose. Yeah. You know, if he were going to do that, why would he go to the trouble of constructing this automaton beforehand in order to distract him for a few moments while he? While you yeah. I forgot about that. And again, one of the creepiest things in the movie. Yeah. But, but it makes no sense. No, the first time you see it, what in the name of the wee man is going on here? <laughs> You're expecting the figure in the in the coat and gloves and with the big stabby thing, and instead of which there's this maniacally laughing puppet which wanders in. And you think as a as a modus operandi, I suppose, as a, if you're planning your murder, right, okay, well, this guy has spoken too much, he must die. But first, I must construct, <laughs> I must construct a, f- a perfectly functioning robot in order to distract him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is going to yeah. be destroyed straight away. But as yeah. you say, it's just a sleight of hand. Look over here and, yeah. and wham. It looks like something out of a Terry Gilliam movie. That, uh, it's it like... does. It's, um, it's Carlo Rambaldi, who was very active in, uh, yeah, in cinema, Italian cinema at this point. Um, and later went on to make E.T. He did, yeah. And he was the guy who got called up in court um, with Lucio Fulci and had to demonstrate that dismembered dogs in... Uh, is it done torture a duckling? Uh, or is it, an, is it in a woman's skin? He had to demonstrate that the dismembered dog was actually, um, you know, an effect rather than they'd done something truly horrible. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a few cases where that happened. Cannibal Holocaust, mm. Ruggiero Diodati, mm. um, mm. uh, was taken to court in Milan and had to prove that the... Uh, the impaled woman was something that you could produce without yes. having to actually impale. He hadn't them. actually he hadn't actually eaten one of the cars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they were somewhat hoisted by their own petard uh, mm. by the fact that to encourage the publicity, they had sort of. I think the tagline was: "This film could only be made where life was cheap." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort, of, sort of like it's kind of your own fault because mm. you suggested that, that this was a snuff film in the first place. So you have these, you, you have these bizarre, that bizarre murder. I think one of the most um, horrific killings in the film, though, isn't actually a murder. It's it's uh, Carlo who has, uh, you know. Oh yes, what a death! Yeah, go ahead, describe it for us, Phil. Paint, oh, paint, right. paint a picture. Paint a picture. Paint an ugly picture. Yes. Um, okay, we're, we're at a point in the movie where Marcus and Jana have pretty much discovered who the murderer is. Jana has gone off on her own to call the police and has been stabbed, and we don't know what sort of state she's in. Uh, and, hey, it turns out to be Carlo. And after a struggle with um, police, it's a fire truck that comes along, or a van or something like that. No, it's, uh, it's actually a garbage truck. Just it's a garbage to... truck, is it? Yeah. And something gets wrapped around Carlo's leg, and it goes. they don't notice. They go off down the road, careering away, and Carlo is being dragged behind again, something we can imagine, and it's not nice. He's bouncing off the curb. He's bouncing off. Uh, he hits a lamppost at one point. And when you think, well, he must be dead now, a truck comes in the other direction and runs over his head. Again, absolutely horrible. Absolutely horrible. He doesn't really shy away from it. The sound effects are all that you would expect in something like this. And it's uh, it's a pretty good death. It's yeah. a pretty good 
Yeah. I mean, it, you have to say hat, hats off. It's, it yeah. does... <laughs> <Hands> off. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he does the trick. I mean, it, mm. these are, are, are movies which definitely uh, you mentioned Scanners earlier, and that was a that was an early favorite for the old rewind and pause uh, yes. uh, button on the v- VCR. Th- these films <laughs> definitely encourage those set pieces to be sort mm. of almost taken out of context and watched as if they were like I don't know musical numbers in a musical yeah i mean this is actually why i think so many argento films uh take me so long to watch because you come to bits and you think oh that is so good that is so clever i mean um the there's a scene in tenebrae with the the razor blade going through the light bulb and every time i watch that particular scene i just have to rewind it and watch it again and think oh that is so good that this is looks so wonderful yeah <laughs> uh, there's a brilliant scene in opera where there's a phone ringing and mm. uh, a woman is looking through the spy hole of a hotel door yeah. her apartment door people mm. and uh, uh, someone shoots her through the door mm. through the eye Mm. And the bullet hits the telephone and stops it ringing, and it's That's just like brilliance of it. Yeah, I know it's just an, almost a moment where you're cheering because it's just so well conceived. And then, of course, yeah, you know that, that, that's um, that's Daria Nicolodi again in her last row. Yeah, and she had an explosive pack on the back of her head or something like that, and so it was it was a good stunt. And it's uh, it's just a series of brilliant images. You see the the bullet turning in the chamber of the gun, the bullet barreling through the lock. And then Daria throwing herself backwards as the back of her head explodes outwards. And then, as you said, the telephone, uh, the telephone gets hit. Yeah, so clever. It's just mm. like seeing someone sort of pop three balls with one shot in. Yes. Snooker. It has that same <laughs> satisfaction of like, why? Well, how did you do that trick shot? It's amazing. And f- and so f- we arrive sort of at the end where the the killer is revealed. And I, I guess we've been spoiling the whole film all the way through. But I, I don't. I, I'll. It's, it's 40 years old, we can spoil it, I think. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. So it turns out to be Carlo's mum, and we see the fuller version of the of the flashback. And she also uh, loses her head as uh, as a, in her final confrontation. It's also interesting that he kind of has already seen the murderer at the very beginning because he... Yeah, and again, it plays it plays straight with the viewer because if you watch it again, you do see her. And mm-hmm. it's quite... It's, it took me a couple of uh, of viewings to think, oh, no, of course, yeah, that's not a painting. That actually is her there directly behind him. It's it's very clever. And again, at the um, at the Argento exhibition in Turin, they had a mock-up of that scene where you could look into the mirror like Hemmings does and see the reflections behind you. And that gave me a bit of a thrill, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, and it sort of it adds, adds to that sort of multi-layered version of the film where, where art is... You know the murders are all artistic, and art is is on the side of the murderer. You know, um, it reminds me a little bit of Seven, David Fincher's film. That you know, the yeah. it's basically serial killer as you know modern conceptual artist, make, yeah. creating yeah. installations to yes, yeah, you know, um, to play out. I mean, that's the difference between Seven and Profundo Rosso. Is Seven has a real this killer has a specific skirma, has a specific thing that they want to present to the world. Rather than just being mad, yes. Yeah, yeah. here it's yeah. just, it feels a bit random. Yeah, I, I, I want to build homicidal puppets because I am an elderly woman and this is what I do, yes. Yeah, yeah a lot of time on my hands. <laughs> you know? 
mm. lot of time on my hands and, mm. and a- anger. This film sort of, as you say, begins his his golden era. I mean, the, the films. What he? This is his third film, is it? This is it's his fourth after what they fourth. call the Animal Trilogy. Yeah, um, and they're good films. They they're all and you know, Crystal Plumage is excellent. Yeah. Um, Four Flies is great. Cat and Nine Tails is the least of them. It's still a good film, yeah. So, I mean, he was not making rubbish before this. He was a very, very accomplished filmmaker already. It's a, In this one, it's like he just says, right, I've done all I can with the Jallo so far. Now we're going to kick it up a gear. And this is more, I mean, as you say, this is Jallo, but we're, we're re- entering where Jallo crosses over into sort of... Um... Definitely. As you said, there's the spooky house thing, there's the hidden chamber, there's all that there in the in the, in the house of the crying child, you know. Even the mm. title, you know, sounds like... Uh, it sounds like a Jallo, it sounds like a horror novel in itself, doesn't it? Oh, mm. of course, and he meets that little girl before he goes uh, mm. into the house and her father hits her. Yeah, uh, and and she stabbed a lizard, and I, I, yeah. I wonder if he would be able to justify that in court. Yeah, I think that bit was quite commonly cut. I think mm. um, because it is an actual lizard, yeah, and that sort of stuff did go on in Italian cinema at this time. I think the little girl is an actress called Nicoletta Elmi, who appears in a few things round about this time. Um, She's in a, a Venetian-based giallo called The Bloodstained Shadow and a few other things in that. Uh, so she's kind of like, you know, one of the one of the pleasures of watching Italian thrillers in this period is that it's almost like a family atmosphere where the same faces keep uh, keep repeating over and over again. And she's kind of one of that stable, I think. You, you get the same thing with the spaghetti westerns. They all pop up in different sort of, from the Leone films to the Kabuchi films to the, you know, there's usually some European or American star parachuted mm-hmm. in. And then, uh, and then, as you say, the troupe of the uh, of the studio is is in various different roles um you, you were saying uh, at the very beginning that this you w- where would you put this in like in argento's sort of uh oeuvre and where would you put this in the sort of history of horror whoa in all honesty as i think that period from profondo rosso to opera they are all great films i think in one way or another However, this is a very different film to Inferno, for example, which is just pure cinema, almost a series of beautiful disconnected images. This is the one which I would show to somebody and say, this is Dario Argento. You know, it's relatively easy to follow. It's, this is, is, for me, this is Argento's feel-good movie. (laughs) It even has, it almost has a happy ending where you realise that Jana and uh, Marcus have survived and will probably go on and have other adventures together and things like that, despite the fact we've just seen an elderly woman being decapitated by a lift. (laughs) With Leaving Marcus vomiting blood, leaving Marcus um, (laughs) looking into this pool of deep red blood. So I think this is, I would actually say, um, my wife quite likes this in a way that she doesn't like Tenebrae. So I would say, yeah, this is a very good one to start with. Is it his greatest film? I don't know. I would make a case for Tenebrae and Suspiria and Inferno. Inferno is great, but it's bonkers. And so I would never show that to anybody as a first Argento film. Where does it stand in the history of horror? I think this is as good as the Jallo gets. Tenebrae is magnificent, but it's like a beautiful sunset. After that, it's kind of the end of an era. I think with Profondo Rosso, we reach pretty much a peak with the Giallo. There are lots of other very good ones, and 
they're not all by Argento by any means. Um, but the, the formula, I think, is almost perfected here. Mm-hmm. So it's it's important for that. This is why he's this is why his films need to be seen. You know, and this is why you know anybody who likes Brian De Palma mm-hmm. could, uh, can can watch watch this and sort of see. Uh, you know, I'm not saying it's an influence necessarily, but the, but certainly a cross pollination was taking place between. I, I think so. Yeah, around about that time in the 70s. Interestingly, when you move on to the early 90s and see Argento's Trauma, uh, which didn't get particularly good reviews, I don't think it's that bad. I think the problem with it is that it feels like a Brian De Palma film rather mm. than the Dario Argento film. And there's nothing wrong with Brian De Palma films; most of them are brilliant as well. But it doesn't feel like Argento's work. It feels like he's trying to copy somebody else uh, or make it look like somebody else. Even the soundtrack to that film is Pino Donaggio. So it sounds like a Brian De Palma film. Pino Donaggio is one of those influences as well. I mean, we've already talked about Carlo Rimaldi and, uh, you mm. know, the, these Italians who who are, mm. you know, going into Hollywood and, and having a huge impact on the international cinema in that way as well, mm. as just craftsmen. Ennio Morricone, obviously, coming out of the Spaghetti mm. Westerns, does the same. Well, listen, Phil, that that's absolutely uh, been an absolute joy going over Deep Red with you, Profundo Rosso. It, it was a real treat to go back to Dario Argento. He's a filmmaker. I remember he, he was one of the first filmmakers I've ever I ever wrote about for um, for an internet site, uh, Electric Sheep Magazine. Remember it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I reviewed the Blu-ray release. I remember watching it the very first time and sort of not being particularly into it. And that was more my fault than it was Argento's because I think I had this prejudice that Italian films had to be sort of lovely to look at. And this is a film which has its loveliness, but it's a macabre loveliness. There's a, there's a beauty in it, but it's a very dark beauty, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, the years of living in Italy has made me realise that, that that loveliness isn't all that there is and you have to look for other <laughs> realities here so it was a great uh pleasure to sort of return to the to the film as well so so thanks for the thanks for the recommendation yeah, it's been a great pleasure and it's uh yeah it's a it's a delight to talk about this sort of stuff at length it's wonderful uh when's your next uh book out phil uh, thank you for asking me that it's out in the middle of july and it's called the venetian candidate so that'll be out in hardback in the uk in july and the ebook and the audiobook will be out around about the same time. Brilliant. Excellent. So everybody should get a copy. Uh, go, run out and get a copy immediately. Well, in July. In July. <laughs> no, no. We, author, authors love pre order. Authors love advance orders. Yes. Oh, right. Yes. Okay. Oh, we, we, we love advance orders. Yes. <laughs> there you go. You, you have been otherwise. Otherwise, Phil has got a pair of black gloves that I can see he's just putting on now. <laughs> um, I've got a hat as well. <laughs> oh, my God. And some, somebody singing an out-of-tune nursery rhyme. There we go. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. Beyond shock. What was that? Beyond horror into total terror. <laughs> Murder runs wild. Blood runs cold. Arrivederci ragazzi, ci vediamo in un prossimo film, lo speriamo.